You're listening to The Iron Show with Johnny McMahon. We're proud to have The Iron Show right here on Fringe Radio Network. That's FringeRadioNetwork.com. Just because you are not paranoid does not mean that they are not coming for you. Uh, this is D. Dutch Miller Prop, and you are listening to the Iron Show. Yes! Alright! Dr. Future, what's up? What's up? King Wells, what's up, King? What's up? What's up? Could I ask you a question, Pete? Sure, Johnny. Anything. What's up? What's up, Johnny? Mark Brett, Counselor Mark. What's up? What's up? All right. Let's bring this man on. Rabbi Mike. What's up? What's Scotland, Cuba, the Demon Slayer. Hey, bro, let me tell you what, I really appreciate the great show you got going on here. Be blessed, bro. Keep on uh, giving the devil a black eye on the iron. Oh. Hello, world. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hello, Iron Show Land. Yeah. Are you crazies that, that like to listen to Johnny? <laughs> Are you unique people, peculiar, strange people? What's up? What's up? Hey, it's your boy Johnny here. I'm down here, Alabama, Orlando, with my host, Richard. Hey, what's up? Hey, it's your boy Johnny here. And I'm down here in the Iron Show studio, deep within the mix edit of Iron Show 36. Little Iron Show that I have entitled Exogenics in the Ether. Oh, it's so nice to be here in your ear. <laughs> yeah, buddy! All right! All right! Hey, uh, we did an Iron Show uh, Wednesday night. I believe it was March, uh, boy, I don't know, March something. March 20-something. And uh, we were uh, doing our Iron Show Live session. And uh, Iron Show Live is a new thing that we've kicked out. Uh, on Wednesday nights, we hook into TalkShoe and uh, just go live. The sound quality's terrible. But, uh, you know, we... Uh, get some live stuff going on and uh, if you want to go in there and hang out with us on Wednesday nights we're not there every Wednesday night it's not every Wednesday because I never know when I'm going to work but uh, yeah so some Wednesdays stop by and uh, just do go in there and do a search for Iron Show or type in the uh, type in the number 59321 in the search box up at the right hand corner of TalkShoe we started up at uh, Wednesday night, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. That would be 7 Mountain, uh, 8 Central, and 9 in New York City. All right! So, uh, yeah, some Wednesdays, uh, we are there uh, at that time. So, 
again, just hang out. Go to TalkShoe.com. And uh, you can go in there. You can uh, either call in or you can, uh, you can just hang out with us in the chat room. You can ask questions or make comments. Uh, again, that's uh, Wednesday night, 6 Pacific, uh, 7 Mountain, 8 Central, and 9 in New York City on TalkShoe. TalkShoe.com. That's TalkShoe.com and enter Iron Show or 59321 in the search box. So anyway, we're in there. We were in there hanging out uh, Wednesday night, and uh, I got locked out. Uh, I got locked out uh, because I was trying some experimental technology, trying to uh, interface the old Iron Show studio uh, through the uh, through a VoIP network and into TalkShoe, which is actually engineered for... Uh, cell phone use or regular regular phone use it actually works the best if you just have a plain old landline that's how TalkShoe likes it but uh, I'm trying to interface the Iron Show studio in there because I lost my cell phone and uh, so what happened was I got in there and uh, I uh, I got the show started and then I got locked out and my uh, my good friends uh, Eric and Dave uh, they stopped by and they uh, came in there and carried the show. And uh, later on, I came in. I broke in. Got got kicked out again. Broke in again. Got kicked out again. Finally got my level set to where uh, TalkShoe could stomach my levels. But uh, I sounded kind of rough because uh, I had my level too high. It was distorting and cutting out and stuff. But uh, anyway, the content was so good because... Uh, uh, these guys, uh, Eric and Dave, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Eric is uh, also a.k.a. Etherman. Uh, as he uses that as his uh, nickname and username. And, and Dave, his nickname is Exegetica. And uh, so uh, what I, uh, Eric is a, uh, a high school science teacher, and he's very well-versed in, in science and uh talk about just about everything um he's, he's a christian man he's been a christian i guess all his life and dave uh, uh aka exegetica is a uh, he's been a uh, full-time researcher uh since 1992 and uh he's he's quite a scholar and uh, they're both just they walk the outer edges of fringe christianity at least that's what I think. I love these guys. They provided some of the best content, you know, for a live show that I've heard in so long. And uh, I just—it it reminded me of the old, uh, it reminded me of the old uh, Teotihuacan roundtable sessions with uh, Keith and King Wells. It's, uh, it got pretty deep. That's where I came up, Teotihuacan, uh, with King Wells, Keith Wells. Them guys are my heroes, man. I love you guys. And, uh, but anyway, it reminded me of one of those old classic Teotihuacan uh, uh, Wells Brothers shows. And I was like, this is cool. This is not going to be an Iron Show Live podcast. I'm going to turn this into a dedicated Iron Show. So here you have what I have dubbed Iron Show 36 Exogenics in the Ether. All right! And I'll let you listen to it now. You should hear these people. 
talk. They just talk like it's it's just a, a sealed deal, and um, you know every scientist in the world agrees with evolutionary theory, and you know, there's no dissent in the scientific community. They, they just make it look like it is a you know a Berlin Wall of uh, of information that you know that nobody can overcome, and uh, frequently the argument degenerated with people just you know, ad hominem attacks and, and name calling and, and, uh, not really dealing with the information and not really, uh, I have one guy constantly say that, uh, well, you know, intelligent design, um, and irreducible complexity should not be taught in schools because it's not, it's inherently religious. And they, see, Dave and I have been talking about this over and over again. These people just, they re, they hear arguments the Illuminati puts out there. Then they just repeat them. They don't really have a lot of uh, original thought on their own, so it's it's really hard to uh, argue with the propaganda because you know you, you'll come up with an argument and then they just repeat something they've heard. They're not really thinking. You almost have to kind of step in. It's like talking to a cultist. Um, you have to kind of say something they never really thought of before. And so uh, you know, I I always go back to the kind of the the same two arguments. Which is, um, you know, this guy, well, actually, I had three good ones, I, I thought, that came out of that. One was is that uh, he was trying to say that uh, intelligent design is not falsifiable, which would be one of the requirements to make it scientific. And then he went on to tell me that uh, Behe's arguments of irreducible complexity, Behe is just a scientist uh, that, that claims that God has created machines, biological machines, like the flagella of a of a, a bacteria. Um, <clears throat> some kind of, you know, small flagella. It doesn't have to be bacterial. It could be like a little organism, you know, like a paramecium or something. Uh, I think they have more of cilia. Anyways, I'm getting too sciencey there. Uh, but anyways, you know, they, they have these little tiny machines, kind of like a little motor. And if you take apart one part of the machine, then it, then it doesn't work anymore. So in evolution theory it would have to have some kind of reason to be there. It wouldn't just all form at once. So it's like a mousetrap. You take one piece of the mousetrap away, then the mousetrap doesn't work anymore. So the mousetrap has to be built by intelligent design all at once, or it loses its functionality. It can't be, you can't have a functional board and then, um, you know, just have the board sitting there really doing nothing, and then you add a spring to it, and the spring doesn't do anything. So that's kind of what the argument of irreducible complexity is. So, um, you know, he's saying, well, you know, irreducible complexity has been showed, shown to be uh, false over and over again. And I was like, wait a second, are you saying that it's falsifiable? falsifiable? Just because it's uh, wrong doesn't make it non-science. You can have a theory and have it be wrong. You can have a hypothesis and have it be wrong. The argument whether it was whether ID was science or not, not whether it was right or wrong. So, you know, and he, he, I never got a response back from him. I guess that argument was one that he hadn't heard before because every time I, I said one thing, I heard the propaganda coming back at me. And it was really hard to argue with propaganda because it's you're not arguing against an argument. You're arguing against something that they're just learning uh, from the internet. It was really funny too, because every time he posted something, I could tell it was cut and pasted from somewhere. And so I would really uh, try to do a diligent search of where he found 
that information. It was usually from Talk Origins or it was from um, uh, Wikipedia. We're about the only two places I, I found him going. Well, what were you saying before, Johnny? Um, you were saying something about Dave's argument, and then you then you got kicked off. So, what were you saying? Well, I just liked a couple points you guys were making. Uh, Dave said that, um, well, for one thing, that um, people are emotionally attached to um, things that they've heard over and over and over again in church sermons, so that they will shut down when you try to reason with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody has embedded programming. Yeah. Well, right. It, it, that's, that was my point with devolutionists. That's what he was doing, too. See, when, composed, when confronted with the argument, he kind of shut down or, the, or resorted, resorted to name-calling because he had an emotional attachment, usually against God. A lot of these guys were just angry at God that there's any kind of creator at all, and that religionists are trying to take over the world and, and force everybody to believe in God. That was their argument. Mm-hmm. And uh, I even had one poster. This is the program. How, how strong the programming is. Say, well, you guys were responsible for the uh, for the Crusades and the Inquisition. I said, I, I never even said I was a Christian. I'm just I'm proposing the intelligent design argument. That doesn't mean I'm a Christian. I mean, I am a Christian, but I never said it on on the on the debate. So they <laughs> just assumed it. You know, not everybody in the intelligent design camp is, you know, a full-fledged Christian. I'm assuming most of them probably are, but it doesn't necessarily follow that, you know. But the propaganda, and I was like, well, um, you know, right, that uh, Mao uh, Mao Zedong and uh, Stalin killed like 100 million people in their regimes, just the two of them. And they were atheistic regimes. That's what, maybe a thousand times more people? Uh, than the Crusades, <laughs> you know, or the Inquisition oh, yeah. combined. You know, I mean, 100 million people, that's a lot of people. And, uh, you know, and, and, they, and they started quoting eugenics, like Christians were responsible for eugenics. I was like, um, no, that was Francis Galton, who was the first cousin of Darwin, who was the father of yeah. eugenics. Yeah, propaganda is very Darwin, too, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, I know he he actually um, believed uh, in uh, preserving his the purity of his seed. So yeah. he married his paternal, no, his maternal father's uh, youngest granddaughter, which yeah. would have been his second cousin, if I'm thinking properly. Huh? Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're exactly right. I remember that. Yes, yep. and um, his first three kids uh, were basically invalids. They were they were so messed up yeah. physically. And then uh, his his uh, youngest son, I believe, uh, only lived to be 19 months and was severely retarded. And he had one other daughter that um, uh, almost made it to, I think it was five. And then uh, his finally, he only had one kid out of six, but she had a severe mental breakdown at age 15. And I believe she was insane the rest of her life. So, but he got that kicked off. Uh, I think he was almost the father of eugenics in an indirect way. He didn't, you know, right. he didn't champion any of the causes, you know, that the, the later eugenics movement, you know, kicked in. I imagine, uh, at least I've heard on his deathbed, he had a lot of regrets for all, all of that stuff. And in fact, in the first Origin of the Species, he pronounced himself as a creationist. And that copy... 
there was only a, there's only like two or three extant copies left of that original first run of Origin of the Species, in which he proclaimed himself a Christian creationist who had just thought he had figured out God's method uh, for at least part of creation. Well, which, see, that's another problem the creation or the evolutionists have is they they fail to distinguish the origin of a species versus the origin of all species. You know what I mean? And, right. Uh, so, so they, you know, I, that was another confusing point too. Is is some of these people wanted to say, well, origins had nothing to do with the debate; it all had to do with speciation. Other people said, oh, well, you know. Uh, they were confused about whether it had to do with the origin of a species or the origin of life on the planet. And then another guy went all the way to the Big Bang. I'm like, they were just all over the map. You know, there was no cohesive. But yet they tried to present this like it's a cohesive theory. Everybody believes the same thing, and science has proven it, and it's a solid fact. And uh, But that's programming. That's not fact. That's not even close to the facts. I mean, that's why you have all these crazy theories like punctuated equilibrium and um, uh, you know, man descending from pigs. And I mean, there's all these different arguments that have arisen through the years because the evolutionists can't agree. And they're all, they're, they're backpedaling and trying to, uh, you know, create the best scenario or just get their name in, in the latest journal. I don't know. Go ahead. I think Darwin, I think Darwin himself really had only put forth the idea of natural selection, which, is you know there's some evidence for that within the species you know um not a species evolving into another species but nat- natural selection within the species well see and that's the point i mean that's the point i mean over and over again uh intelligent design proponents and evolutionists would agree that there are variations within a species and natural selection occurs uh due to certain pressures but Right. It, the, the argument is not over that. That that's that's another thing that was frustrating. Is they kept repeating that over and over. I said I'm not arguing with you about that. You know, they kept bringing up the example of like the stickleback or something. I'm like, yeah, but it's still a stickleback. It didn't change into a different animal. You know what I mean? I, it, what they can't prove, and it's not falsifiable, is this ongoing process for thousands of years. You can't prove that occurs. And. Uh, and I never get responses back to that. They just keep glossing over that like it's not important. But that's really the central te- tenet of evolutionary theory, that mutations and that are selected through um, different population pressures eventually arrive at a, a new species or a, a species that's reproductively, reproductively isolated, and eventually those changes accumulate over thousands and millions of years to create all diversity. That's their argument. And yet, they yeah, not only that, but artificial manipulation. I mean, we don't uh, we don't seem to uh, know. We don't know really what happened in ancient history with any. You know, there's artificial manipulation that could have gone on pre-flood that would to- have totally destroyed the uh, just uh, what we have to look at, the evidence we have to look at. You know, in our in our own modern era, all dogs, even the little tiny uh, pocket dogs that are in fancy. Uh, rich Hollywood ladies' purses, they all came from the wolf. That's all artificial, you know, it's all man-made, you know, man-intervening. Uh, you know, they're all canine, of course, but they all descended from the wolf, 
we know that because we did it. We don't know what happened in history either. There could have been a lot of artificial manipulation uh, in the species. And also, we don't know what happened pre-flood. There could have been a lot of gene splicing. You know, we have the unclean and the clean animals. We don't know. I always thought that maybe the unclean animals were a uh, were artif- artificially man- manipulated. I don't know. It's a, it's a thought. The only reason I, I've been talking about this and trying to use an example, like I said, is I've got it all on the top of my head, and I've been debating these guys, and I think that the argument's kind of worn itself out because they're not responding anymore. <laughs> no, they, they close their mind to it, you know. Yeah, they do, but but mainly because of emotional biases, not because there isn't information. And uh, one of the guys, I'll give him credit, you know, even though he's an evolutionist, you know, he's willing to kind of have a, a back and forth, and, and he was, uh, you know, congenial and that kind of thing. And I've actually seen a couple sites. I, I, I saved one that was really good. That's the uh, site where I was talking about the uh, uh, the simian DNA uh, and the 48 chromosomes versus R46, and he was addressing that whole concern. Excuse me. Um, so he was, uh, you know, that was, that, but, you know, they had evolutionists and creationists on there, and they're all being so nice to each other. But they were having a really great discussion back and forth, and it was all very, um, uh, you know, kind of technical information. But uh, it was neat how well they uh, posed their arguments and could be civil about it, which is all really the intelligent design people want. They want an equal forum. Um, but you know, that, that, you know, you look at like something like the Huffington post, you know, if if you even bring up the idea, a lot of this started because Tennessee just passed, uh, an anti-evolution, uh, bill. And right. uh, so they were, you know, getting on the, the Tennesseans for being backwards and a bunch of hillbillies and, you know, science has proven this, you're just backwards down there and, and it was just a lot of ad hominem remarks. And so um, it was pretty sad that to see how arrogant these people are, thinking that this is just a rock-solid thing and that, you know, ID is not science by default just because it's, you know, it has God doing something. But it's not even the Christian God. It could be any, you know, creator. It's just intelligent design. I believe it's the Christian God. But that's not what that's not ID's point. This guy kept wanting to bring up an ontological argument and having me prove God. He's like, There's no way you can prove God. I said, I'm not trying to prove God. I'm just trying to say this is science because you can if you can falsify a theory like ir- irreducible complexity, then it's science. It has to be falsifiable. And it ha- it can and it can be experimented on. If you are looking at something that ranges over millions of years, you can't test that. You can't test something that ranges over millions of years and prove that that occurs. And so what they're doing is they're saying, well, yes, we can, because we can look at the fossil record. And uh, so that's that's their argument. But yeah, you We can't, can't really prove, even prove the, the fossil record ranges over millions of years, though, can we? I, I don't believe so. Um, here, here's a dirty little secret of the uh, dating of rocks, okay? Now, now this is pretty um, controversial, what I'm going to say. But what, you know, Dave and I have been talking about tonight is things that people don't talk about in the church. Well, there's things that people don't talk about in science either, okay? And so they make it sound like these, the dating of rocks is rock solid. And, and they'll use uh, dating methods like the potassium-argon method, or they'll uh, 
for most fossils, they're not going to use a carbon-14 because there's no more really carbon left. Carbon-14 dating is used for things that are a little younger, you know, that are maybe thousands of years old. Uh, right. So, but, you know, car- potassium-argon dating, uh, there's a few others. Um, um, I, you know, I'd have to look them up off the top of my head. But anyways, the idea is that they're looking at uh, these different groups of radioisotopes. And so they're looking at the half-life and saying, okay, well, you have so much of this parent. They assume so much of this parent uh, isotope. And then, you know, if we know the half-life, then uh, we can look at what we know we have now. And then we can, you know, gauge how much has uh, a decayed. And then we can date it. You know, that's right. the whole see, idea. That's the, that's the problem. And that's the, that's the problem is, is assuming the quantity of the uh, parent isotope. Right, and there are arguments around that. Sometimes they'll say, well, it could be uh, there, there, there is one method called isochron dating, which the entire um, uh, decay actually happens inside the rock, so there, there's no influx or efflux. And, and isochron dating is a very strong argument for accurate dating. The problem is two things about isochron dating. First of all, uh, it's not done on all these fossils because you can't find isochrons in every fossil. How do you know that that rock that you're dating didn't just, you know, fall into that fossil debris field, or how did, or these two different debris fields didn't merge or something? I mean, I'm just speculating here. I don't, I'm not a geologist or anything. But here's the dirty little secret. Okay, there is a probability equation. See, how do you know about a half life? If you're going to say a half life of an isotope takes millions of years to decay. Well, did you sit around and wait for millions of years to see if it decayed? No. Right. This no, you only have a certain amount of time to uh, take a sample of and then, uh, and then judge the rate of decay just based on a small amount of time. I don't know how much time they use, but it's, well, it's not usually more than a few years, is it? Well, actually, the way they take these, um, these half-lives, how they get these decay rates it's, they're, they're called decay constants, and every isotope has a different decay constant. That is formulated, and this is, this is the controversial part, by a, an equation that's way over my head, okay? It's a big, long equation, but I've looked at it. This information is actually pretty hard to find because I was – every time I looked at this stuff, it was always, uh, you know, this is how they generate the half-life. I was like, well – how you know what part, what components of the equation that generate the half life are they using? So I looked at these decay constants, and I yeah I know from other studies that sometimes when they say constant, you know just my illuminati, illuminati paranoia, if you will, I was like, well, how do I know that's constant? You know they're telling me it's constant, but how do I know? So I lo- I was looking for the information about the decay constants, and I said, okay, well. How are they formulating that decay constant? That's all based on a probability equation. Like I said, that's way over my head. It's probably way over the head of 99.9% of the people on the entire planet. There's only a few scientists that actually understand how those decay constants are even formulated, and they're the ones formulating them. Whenever you see that kind of priest hierarchy system, I get suspicious. Right. So I, I, I look at that decay constant, and I'm going, okay, they're telling me from their mathematical equation. They're asking me to trust that that equation is so complex that I don't understand it and that I need to believe that their decay constant is going to be able to predict that uh, that radioisotope is going to decay over millions of years. See, but I don't know that. 
See, and I don't, also don't know that there can't be like something like a cosmic ray or something else that because there are examples of decay rates changing because of like a solar flare or something, you know. Right. Yeah. So cosmic ray bombardment, it'll change the decay rates. It, it, it could, yeah. I actually talked to a physicist who said, absolutely. You know, th- he didn't believe in any dating because, and this guy was working on radiation shields and, tr- you know, he was working with different radioactive materials to try and develop radiation shielding for some of the flight modules, you know. And he was kind of an independent contractor or anything. He was a really interesting guy to talk to. But anyway, so he was, um, I kind of talked to him about it. And this guy talked way over my head, you know. But, um, but I picked up some, a few things. And, and I talked to him about this decay constant kind of thing. And, and you know, and I said, well, am I, you know, am I analyzing this correctly? He's like, you absolutely are. You know, those, those decay constants are, uh, you know, their best guesses, really, you know. And I even read an article that was saying, well, we can't be accurate within a few million years, but, you know, I'm like, what do you mean you can't be accurate within a few million years? That's a pretty big margin of error, you know. So anyways, that's kind of the dirty little secret is the decay constant thing. And it's actually hard information to find. I had to do a lot of digging on it. So for me, that was like a, a huge red flag that, See, even the isochron dating then becomes into question. They're assuming those this decay rate happened over millions of years. If you don't assume that that decay rate is is uh, or that decay constant is what they say it is, then all bets are off. So that's that's the big question I pose to them: is prove to me that decay constant is what you say it is over millions of years. Again, you can't observe it, so they could say you know whatever they want. And, Plus. Uh, Plus, do we understand? I mean, do we understand uh, time space well enough to form a, a frame of reference for the whole thing? Right. Well, that they claim they can, but you know that's pretty arrogant too. I think. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I was trying to bring it down to you know a level that is not too boring because you know I I think this stuff is interesting, but I think it also highlights that. There's collusion there. There there can be collusion there. There could be a problem there, but there aren't that many people qualified to really examine it. So you have a priesthood kind of mentality. Well, just trust us, you know. Well, I don't trust you. That's the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So Yeah, the, the general population isn't smart enough to even ask the right questions. Well, and this yeah. is the thing, you know, they're trying to bring up these highly technical issues to high schoolers and say, well, just believe us because, you know, we have all the evidence. These guys aren't able to discern it because they're not professional scientists. So that's why, you know, the, uh, with the whole idea of origins, really both ideas should be taught because, you know, get, give these kids a chance to make up their own minds and uh, not, you know, present present arguments for and against both sides and, and let let kids examine it. You know, you know, I actually I, I grew up in a public school where they actually did a week long debate series because they had uh, teachers on both sides of the debate. And, and instead of arguing about it, they just this was back in the 80s, you know, and the, but, it, you know, it, it occurred even up to a few years ago at my high school where they, they had the debate week and they would come in and they would pick sides and, you know, some of the evolutionists actually were required to take the creationist side and argue for creation so they would learn the other position, which I think is a great idea, you know? Um, it's really sad when they want to exclude one view over another. Right. Well, you know, evolution, um, 
you know, you have to look, you have to look back at the, uh, you have to look back at the, uh, you know, the interests that are involved, you know, I mean, evolution, obviously it cheapens life, right? Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, and it's a system of death. What it construct, is. You know, if you're going to construct a society like a, oh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, an imperialist, uh, oh, based on pagan religion, you're going to have to take away the value of, of human life. And probably you have to take away the value of animal life. And what better to do that than to, you know, completely leave it up to nature as the god, you know? Right. Well, it's an atheistic philosophy, really, at its core. Uh, here, here's, a, here's a funny uh, little factoid. Nobody before the 19th century believed in evolution. All no. the scientists, all the scientists that laid the foundation for modern science, you know, uh, Robert Boyle and, uh, and uh, Maxwell and uh, Tycho Brahe, all these scientists that laid down all the foundation for all these different disciplines, they were all creationists. Now, here's the thing. The entire ancient world believed in creationism. Nobody believed in evolution until the 19th century. You know, and people will say, well, you can't argue from, you know, popular belief because that's a, a logical fallacy. Well, hey, Eric. Yeah. Also, if you're conspiratorially minded, uh, you need to understand that the Illuminati are religious people mm-hmm. and that they're actually creationists. And uh, that property right. is just foisted upon us, keep us down on the farm. But anyway. Right. Yeah. No, I, I was trying to say the same point. Dave. What do you call that? The imperialistic uh, uh, deism or. No. What is the idea of having an imperialistic society with a secret um, uh, uh, religious agenda behind it, like a technocracy? But I think that's a good term. Well, there's a there's a um, there's an agenda, you know, behind the atheistic uh, thought, and it's uh, it, the thing is, is that it's it's become a, a religion, and it's become really ignorant and covert and um, hidden within the shadows and that's why you have all these weird ideas coming out and it's not because that evolution is a science that you can get behind and work from it's because it's driven by an agenda behind it well yeah I agree and I, I think if Christians though take the time to just flesh out a few simple counter arguments that are really pretty def- defensible then it makes it a lot easier to talk to somebody that's, that's an evolutionist. And I, I think another good tactic is to kind of present it as a as a third-party view and maybe not your own view. Like, well, a creationist would say, you know, and, and then uh, especially dealing with like a theistic creationist. I One of the arguments I, I used one time, uh, uh, this guy was, uh, you know, trying to say, well, how do we know God didn't use, uh, you know, evolution and, and that six days weren't, uh, you know, millions of years. And I was like, well, you got flowering plants first, and then you have insects later. If they, how did the flowering plants get pollinated if the insects didn't come until millions of years later? That's that's a huge problem, because that's the way the six days of creation lays it out. So either God got it wrong, or he magically pollinated them using fairy dust until the insects came along. So... <laughs> Theistic evolution, I mean, that's not the only proof against theistic evolution, but um, that's one. 
you know. So if you're gonna if you're gonna hold to a biblical view and that the Bible is the Word of God and and that uh, you're gonna say, well, that's symbolic, then then you have to look at the text and you, and you can't, you know, do some funky strategies to get around some of those passages. You just have to admit that that doesn't work. That theistic evolution, at least in that case, with the six days being symbolic, doesn't work for for that reason alone. You know, there's other arguments against it too. Hey Johnny, are you a young Earther? Yeah. Yeah, what? yeah we we are too. What? I'm when I say young though, I'm like I'm more like um maybe hundreds hundreds of thousands of years, not millions certainly, and not billions. Well, you're a lot different uh, than I am, Eric. Yeah, I, I, I extend history out a little bit more. I'm not six thousand year Earther though. Oh, young Earth. No, I'm not either. Six thousand year Earther, no. There's just too yeah. much evidence just within um just within archaeological evidence, there's just too much evidence going back to ten thousand B C, fourteen thousand well, yeah, B C that's when Sumer, you know. See that's another argument against evolution. Is you have basically no anthropological evidence at all that there was any development leading up to Sumer. Here you have Sumer pops out of the sky with a fully formed religion, a fully formed language. Uh, you know, it, it, it was a culture that just kind of dropped out of the sky. And, well, and yet, there is some stuff before, you can go a few thousand years before that, some uh, city dwellers in Turkey and, and uh, also in, I think it's the lower Mesopotamia. Oh, yeah? yeah? I mean, you're right, for the most part, at least as far as I know. Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, that's one of the, you know, I, I thought that was the oldest dated uh, civilization. I, well, guys, you know, I'm not, I'm not an anthropologist. I, the problem is, just, with the flood, it just there's so much debris stirred up with all the water. I mean, <clears> I, I believe there's, you know, all kinds of stuff there, but it's just buried. It's hard to find. It's down far. It's deeper down. Oh sure. Well, yeah. you even have, you know, things that we can still see, like the Bimini Road and yeah. stuff like that, that are, you know, they're out, out of. Uh, a ways from shore, but they're, you know, like you said, they've been destroyed or, you know, so when we say that writing began with Sumer or, or something like that, that's just because we don't have any records before that. That's all. Right. Right. Well, well I'm just saying that's a real problem for an evolutionist, because if you're going to say man developed from, you know, this hunter gatherer kind of crude, you know, humanoid, and then he eventually developed, you know, things like language and the ability to communicate and, and, you know, and became more agrarian. You have to prove that. You can't just Yeah, we would see slow evolving evidence for that instead of just it magically popping up 6,000 yeah. B.C. in Sumer. Yeah, with a that's, that's full, what I'm saying. Yeah, with a full-blown, you know, uh, language system, writing system, math system. I mean, <laughs> just like you say, overnight, it was just bam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, they and say it was given point. to them by the gods. That's what they say. Right. Everybody says that, by the way. Do you know that? Right. Well, here's, here, let me give you another problem for the evolutionist. How do you explain a near universal belief? And, and, and actually, there's a great book uh, out there. It's called uh, Visions and Memories of Paradise. And this guy proves, basically, that all these different cultures that are separated uh, – that, you know, didn't have necessarily contact with each other, but yet they all have an original man and a woman. They all have like the mountain of God and an Eden right top of it. They have they have a flood legend. Uh, they have um, 
Uh, help me out there, Dave. What, what other uh, they things have do they a, have? Uh, a trickster, which used, uh, oftentimes is a serpent. That They have a cosmic mountain there. They have a tree. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they, I forgot about that one. They have the they original tree. have a fruit. And they have four primordial rivers. Yeah, they, they have they the do. concept of a fall, and they have the concept that uh, not only do they lost, that God abandoned them at some point. They, they talk about this around the world. And um, this is actually documented in the book, uh, Eternity in Their Hearts. Uh, it's a great little book. Um, it's still available. But uh, they also talk about this time when they lost contact with heaven because they used to teach that heaven communicated with earth and that you could actually access heaven. And, and they used to um, symbolize it by like a rope or a ladder or sometimes a bridge or a staircase. And this is where people theorize they got the ziggurats and the pyramids, which has to do with that, but also this concept of this cosmic mountain, which has been lost to Christianity, because even with like St. Augustine and stuff like that, they still believed in this mountain. But they tried to place it on their cosmology. Now we think... Are you going back to the Tower of Babel? They're alluding to that? Well, we think Tower of Babel was this, representing this cosmic mountain, too. You had to get high to sacrifice to the gods, and even before um, like King Uzziah's day... Um, everybody sacrificed in high places if you had any money at all, if you lived in uh, you know, ancient Hebrew. Because people say, well, that's forbidden. It was forbidden later because they, they started to corrupt it and do what the, the pagans were doing and stuff like that. But see, there was no temple. So what did they sacrifice? Well, they sacrificed on a high place. You can actually see it in Scripture. Yeah, no, the powers, powers aware of it. But it was forbidden. In, uh, there was reforms in King Uzziah's day because the people had lapsed into idolatry. There's also a theory that uh, Margaret Barker talks about this. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but uh, Michael Heiser her. reads her. And she theorizes that, that they also had artifacts in the temple that uh, had to be taken out, like this uh, Asherah pole, um, because they right. started to idolatrize, fall into idolatry with that, too, so they had to remove it. <clears throat> so. Did you know Michael Heiser's got a podcast going? I didn't know that. What? Johnny? What? Say again? Did you know that uh, Michael Heiser started the podcast? No, I didn't know that. That sounds pretty good, though. I was moving around at the beginning of the show, so I didn't know if you mentioned or not. But yeah, I just went there today. He's got two podcasts. He's talking about baptism, but they're very short. They're only like 12 or 13 minutes. Wow, that's worth listening to. Yeah. I've probably listened to everything he's ever done on you know, on other shows, but mm-hmm. I've actually got his uh latest book in a PDF file. I think he let it was free for like a month and then he uh pulled it back or something like that, but I, I got a hold of that, so <clears throat> what do you think of his concepts on the um the original council? Well, the divine council was taught in scripture. Now the thing is is that in the academic community, um there's quite a number of things. Uh, that they discuss, and it's kind of funny because they don't really give their opinion on them. You kind of have to ask them a pointed question, and they go, "You want to know what I believe?" Because <laughs> there are some of the ancient Hebrews believe this, or they believe that, you know. But you have all these things discussed, and they actually do not dribble down uh, to the pastor level. There's actually um, a pretty big discontinuity between uh, pastors and the academic community. So anyway, the the concept of a divine council, you know, which Michael Heiser, what he did is that he, he he made that contribution, and he kind of introduced it basically into the Christian community, uh, Christian conspiracy community, which is not very large, really, or whatever the heck, depends how you want to grade it, large or small, because most church, you can go to church, 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 and you might find one to three people in the church that's sending this stuff, or nobody at all. They think you're from planet Mars, you know. 
Well, did did you but, know that's basically because I've my little research that I've done is basically because um, there was that was once embraced, especially in the ancient Hebrew culture. That was embraced, uh, but um, later in the Christian era, in the very early Christian era, the Church Fathers, Augustine, shot it down. And then later in the um, Middle Ages, uh, or late, I guess in the 1600s, uh, Matthew Henry came and shot it down again. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? Augustine was vehemently opposed to the... I did not know that. I I knew that he was against the... um you know, the uh, the Nephilim thing uh, in Genesis 6. He thought that was the sons of Seth, you know. I read well, his Thompson Without Trans- the book of Enoch, it would be hard to determine that, you know, or any pseudepigraphal work, if you're not yeah. really looking at the pseudepigrapha. That's why then... they started to have a disparaging view against the book of Enoch, because it just, it just taught things that they didn't believe anymore. So that was one of them. Well, I think that I think as we get farther and farther away from the ancient Semitic mind view, worldview, that um, uh, our, that's when it changed. That's when it morphed. I think Augustine was the beginning of the change there. He said in his commentary on Psalm 82, he said, "Far be it from us to believe that uh, that the gods addressed in Psalm 82 were anything more than mortal men." Yeah, that's garbage. See, you know what actually says um, if you have like the English Standard Version, well, Matthew Michael Henry, Heiser uses, it actually says divine counsel right there in, in Psalm 82, verse 1. Right, well, it says, in my Hebrew trans, I've got interlinear Hebrew, an old one. Now, in my, in my interlinear Hebrew, um, the word for God and gods are the same exact words. We just know that gods is uh, plural because yeah. of the preposition um, in the midst of. Mm-hmm. But to say it's Elohim, it's the same word. Mm-hmm. Elohim stands in the midst of Elohim. Mm-hmm. See, that's that's a problem there. But Matthew Henry, he really shot it down when he came up with the idea that's most championed today in your modern um in your modern seminaries and everything, and that is uh the idea that these uh God among the gods, these gods were the judges uh, who had been given uh, authority on earth to represent God and given the power of gods. Yeah, that's the problem with commentaries, though, is one person can influence so strongly. Well, uh, that commentary today is the most, uh, it's, it's still the, the number one devotional commentary, you know. I'm not saying commentaries are bad, but, you know, you, you got to remember, a commentary is... It, it it can be a scholarly opinion, but it, it is an opinion, and you have to weigh it just like you weigh anything else, and compare it, you know, and and do the do the work for yourself to figure out whether you weigh in on that position or not. Uh, but a lot of people they just do the same thing they're doing with their pastors. They read the commentary and say that's I believe Matthew Henry because he knows more than I do, so I'm just going to mm-hmm. sit here and absorb what he says. Well, he was a great right, right. I believe Augustine because he was third century or second century and closer to the source, you know, than I'll ever be because I'm two thousand years removed, and that's mm-hmm. not even true. I mean, the farther we get, the more we seem to understand, mm-hmm. and that's that's counterintuitive. I mean, that's crazy counterintuitive. But the farther away we get, the more we unearth, and yeah. the more we understand about this ancient um, mindset. Mm-hmm. There's a tension between lost knowledge and gaining knowledge, because both is happening. Because we did lose, 
and we have progressively lost things, you know. Part of it's culture. But we have gained huge milestones in the oh, last. Oh yeah, month. yeah. We've we've gained a whole lot of like recovering mm-hmm. ancient texts, you know, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. There you go. I mean, there's one example right there. That's the biggest, probably. Mm-hmm. And, and look, look at Enoch. Look. You know, people criticize the Book of Enoch, but just forget about it, whether it should be in a canon or not. I don't think it should be because it's um, you can't really measure the uh, level of corruption. I mean. Um, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it doesn't, we don't have a complete uh, portion of it. But um, what, yeah. it, what it's worth is is revealing um, what the people believed back then, as far as their traditions. That's the value of it. See. Well, it another be, thing is, is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, is you could weigh the value of individual books by how many copies they had. So, you know, you look at the Book of Isaiah; that was incredibly important to the Dead Sea. Scroll community or the Dead Sea community, the Qumran community, I guess you could call it. Uh, they had, they said you know several copies of it, whereas some other books they just you know, they may have one copy of it. So you know if you're going to study a book, you want multiple copies if, in a community. Mm-hmm. So that I, I, this is my opinion. The scholars say this. They they say you know these are were important books in the Qumran community. So so yeah, what I'm saying know, is they had was quoted by Jesus and Jude. Yeah, I mean, there's other places, too, uh, where even scholars acknowledge that there, there's at least partial quotations or references to the uh, the Book of Enoch. Whether it's delivered or not, it's got the same uh, belief that's kind of unique to the Book of Enoch and the New Testament. So I think we have an issue of do we have a proper t- tradition of that book or not. That's no, a huge... I don't think we do. We don't have enough information about it. That's why it can't be in the canon. We may in the Ethiopian canon, though. I don't know. I've heard that. Discussed. Yeah, they've got it in the Ethiopian canon, yeah. And they may have a proper tradition of it. I know it's different in there. Mm-hmm. I don't think They're, that one was discovered until, what, the 14th or 15th century, though? I mean, that's pretty far removed, too. I actually think that their traditions could be the least corrupted going all the way back to, like, the 2nd century, but the problem is they're not reliable either, because I know they've got some things where they're really messed up on. Um, so that it tends to bring into question pretty much everything, you know directly with this issue that no one talks about as What's far that? as, well, it's Matthew seventeen eleven. Jesus is coming down from the Mount, uh, and his disciples are coming down from the Mount Transfiguration, and his disciples asked him, um, Master, why do the Pharisees say that Elijah will come first? And he says that Elijah will come and restore everything or all things. Now, it's common for people to say that that refers to John the Baptist. Right. And, and um, the problem there's a number of problems there, um, and we we talk about this, but basically, we believe that it's futuristic, and we we, we believe that we, we can actually prove it, but not to focus on the person, but he's saying that that there's going to be a restoration in the future, and it follows by necessity. If there's going to be a restoration, then things have to actually be corrupt. You see, so that would right. mean that they're corrupt right now. Right. That means that you start to question, okay, we know that God has to preserve certain things. Because um, Paul says in Romans 9 that how will they know without a preacher? So you have to have specific knowledge about Messiah to even be saved. You can't just look at the creation, acknowledge that there's a creator. Now, you might disagree with this, but this is most, what most Christians believe based on Romans 2 or Romans 1, that you can just get saved by acknowledging that there's a creator. But the problem is missionaries never acknowledge that this happens anywhere. They always have to give them the gospel. You know what I mean? 
Uh, so, no, you should clarify that a little more. Um, well, well, there's the basically between general revelation and special revelation. You have to have a special revelation of Christ mm-hmm. in order to receive, you know, the gospel. It, if you just look at creation, you're not going to you're not going to be able to pick up that special revelation. You, you have to be told. For That's instance, like John Hagee. John Hagee teaches that you can that Jews can be regenerated without accepting Jesus as Messiah, right? Did you know he teaches that? No, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, that's it. Most people would call that a heresy. So, see, Romans 9, uh, Paul says, how will they know without a preacher? Well, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is, they won't know. That's why it's not even answered, because the answer is obvious. So you have to have specific information about Christ and be able to respond to that. You know what I mean? Even if you're just going to say like a simple little prayer, like a Baptist evangelist would give you, based on Romans 10, 9, that still has to do with information about Christ. You have to receive him as the Messiah. And we talked about earlier, you don't have to know about the Trinity, necessarily, but you do have to receive Christ, and that's why the the, the Jews in the flesh, they're so unregenerate because they're rejecting him, see? Well, John Hagee says, oh no, they're God's chosen people. That's a radical view. That's a radical form. Well, that's actually what's called hyper-dispensationalism. But there's different types of hyper-dispensationalism, and that's just kind of a branch of it. Not very yeah, people. in my formation, I was sort of taught that, that, well, no, the Jews, no, yeah, they haven't accepted Christ, but God has a plan for his people. That's the way it was explained to me. And then if you'd ask any deeper, they would just repeat the statement over again. And so you'd never really get an answer. Yeah, well, what dispensationalism does, it draws a, a strong dichotomy between what we call the church, which is not really biblical terminology, and, uh, and Israel of the flesh, unregenerate Israel. And the prophecies in Scripture, like the book of Isaiah, they're actually not for us. This is what dispensationalism teaches. They're actually for Israel of the flesh. They're going to become regenerate and then fulfill these prophecies. These are promises that are given to them, not us, you see where the historical position of the church across the board until the third decade of the 19th century, they all taught the same thing, Eastern and Western church, that those prophecies were actually for us and that we are the Israel of God. We're spiritual Israel. And you can allow within certain eschatologies that God will actually restore a God-ordained theocracy just like he had in the first century. But in between, you have this period that we call the diaspora. And Christians are not really, they don't really very conscious of that. I mean, they'll talk about how we're Israel, you know what I mean? But they just talk about the blessings. So we got grafted into the blessings, but in this view, in this diaspora view, we also got grafted into the sufferings, and we're actually the tail. And if you look around, um, you know, spiritually, you could say that we're we're the head. You know, it's all like invisible. Nobody pays any attention to us. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. Deuteronomy 28. I think he's talking about that we're the tail uh, in the eyes of the world, and we and we're we're suffering. You know what I mean? Everybody's suffering. And I think that, uh, you know, that we're Israel, and like I said before, it's like a co- corporate entity that moves to the corridors of time, and it's a single corporate thing, and we're waiting for um, the blessing to come. I mean, there's something better than this. Everybody believes that except for Preterists. Preterists think this is, this is it right now. It doesn't get any better than this. You know, they teach that. It, it would be unfair to, to give my labeler out and um, uh, punch out replacement theology and paste it on your head, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can hear people shouting, oh, where's my holy water? i got to pour it on this replacement theologist here. But, you know, there's a huge point 
that you're trying to make, well, that you're making, and that I would probably just try to make, that is, well, when you consider that we've been grafted into the vine, everything changes when you look at it through that lens. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, I, just, I just hold to the historical view of the church that, uh, that we're Israel, you know. That's the historical church view? Yeah. Spiritual well, when Israel. you've been grafted into the vine, you, you'd become Israel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What's That's the point? point? Yeah. What about the warning that we're not to boast against the natural vine? Well, it's, it's kind of an admonition not to boast against it, because if he broke off the natural vine, then the one that was grafted in could also be bro- uh, broken off. So he's kind yeah. of warning not to become arrogant and not to look down on those that did not receive the promise, you know. I just wondered what you would, how you would process that. That was, that was good. Don't teach this, but you can make the case um, that in the first century church, there was actually a two-tiered system. Um, You can actually base that on uh, Romans uh, chapter three, verse one. It says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? And then he actually answers the question. He says much in every way, you know, and then he goes on to say they have the law. And uh, it says in uh, Genesis or uh, excuse me, getting late or something. Romans chapter two that um, that only the Jews have the law in the first century because it says that the Gentiles are going to be judged by their conscience. And Paul was writing to Christians um, that were both Jewish and um, Gentile in Rome. You know, so I, I believe that he was speaking to both of those groups. He wasn't speaking to unregenerate um, Gentiles, but they didn't. You know, because you had that council there in Acts fifteen, and you can see that they weren't required to keep you know, the law of Moses. Well, what if somebody throws the, what if somebody throws the verse at you that says that there's no distinction, therefore, between Jew and Gentile? That's well, what do you do with that? Yeah. Paul teaches different things in different contexts. The Bible right. does that over and over again, yeah. So You it, can't it, really it, apply that to what you're saying. Yeah, just like you can see all kinds of different right. teachings about sonship in different contexts and adoption and stuff like that. It all depends on the context. I would say he's actually affirming what we're saying because what he's really showing is that those that are in Christ are one body. Mm-hmm. So you're not distinguishing now between a national Israel and a Gentile. You're all one body in Christ. And I think that's the point Paul's making there. What do you think of the of the thought that since we've been grafted into the vine that the Jewish history has become our history? Well, there's a sense of what that's true um, in a redemptive sense. You know what I mean? But not literally that our ancestors were enslaved in Egypt? Well, there are spiritual ancestors, you know. Right. It'd be hard to prove that anyways. I mean, how how would we know our descent comes from that? You know what I mean? But Paul how do we know that our descent doesn't come from that? I mean, every Northern right. European... I mean, I'm not a replacement theologist, but there's they have good points that a lot of the tribes in Northern Europe could have been... Basically, descended from the you know the diaspora, the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and uh, I, I Dave knows more about that. I mean, that's that's like uh, in some sense, you know, without labeling it, you know, British Israelism and and uh, you know, I I just you know kind of look at that and wonder maybe if that's true or not, you know. But uh, I I wouldn't hold to that, would you, Dave? Say it again, just real quick. The, the British Israelism that the the the, tri- the North uh, European tribes were descended from well, Israel. 
you know, you well, can take almost no, any ideology and, and almost any ide- ideology, and you'll find some truth this, in it. The uh, Germanic tribes, the Gauls, the yeah. Um, I think we lost him. Are you still there, Johnny? Yeah. Oh, okay. that's, that's a huge, broad subject. If you were to just take it a real simple question and say, do you believe in the lost tribes? The problem is that's not even a simple question. You have to define what do you mean by lost, you know, yes or no question. Um, that's a tough well, one. Well, they, they were cast among the nations, though. I mean, yeah. and you have to assume that would be all nations. The Jews were spread all over the earth. Yeah, and yeah. Diaspora. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that throws a monkey wrench into that is I, I actually have a, a Swedish-Norwegian background, so I'm a little bit familiar with their myths, and I've been studying them over the last few years. Uh, they don't... Uh, the the Northmen and, and some of the uh, uh, Scandinavian myths, they, they say they don't come from Midgard. Uh, and so... <laughs> I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I know where they come from, but I'm just saying that they don't even say they come from uh, that area. Oh, you know, the, so their myths are saying that um, you know we didn't we didn't come from here. We we arrived at Midgard, and when I mean Midgard, I'm talking about Earth, Middle Earth, as Tolkien kind of described it. That's that's what Midgard means, just Middle Earth. He just he derived that from. Uh, uh, this Anglo-Saxon kind of belief system. He was really, really into that. And that's where he derived a lot of the information for Lord of the Rings. Um, Is that not a reference to the Cradle of Civilization? Isn't that a reference to Mesopotamia? Midgard? No. Yes. I was Actually, Midgard, they had like an ice wall around Midgard. And then there were, they had other lands outside of that. Midgard, in their view, kind of referred to Earth. And that's wow. that's where that's where Tolkien got that. You know, he he had like these lands of the west and the east, and um, if you recall, but he he was driving this all from, uh, you know, these. I, I, I can't think of the word. It's uh, well, some of it's Norman, but that just meant North Northmen. Uh, the Normans were Scandinavians that settled in northern France, and they. Um, you know, so it, I was, you know, I actually didn't know that. I mean, I, you know, I just like, who are these Normans? And uh, just through trying to kind of retrace that whole history of England and, uh, you know, they always talk about Alfred the Great and, and him expelling the uh, the uh, Norse invasion. And then, well, he did until, you know, his, his son and grandson eventually uh, were taken over by the Normans and... Um, so they didn't stem the Norse invasion. They were taken over by the Normans and came in and established, you know, uh, feudalism in, in Europe. I mean, I'm sorry, in uh, in Britain. And so, he, you know, he was only able to stop it in his generation. Eventually, it degenerated, and they they ended up taking over. So, um, anyways, I I just thought that was fascinating because I I actually didn't know that. You know, they, they always made it sound like you know the the invasion stopped, and England developed kind of on its own. Hey, Eric? Yeah. I guess Eleven said that that's a Mormon belief, isn't it? I think he might be talking about the uh, Lost Tribes. I've actually got a book um, by a Mormon uh, scholar, and uh, I, I buy books because I study comparative religion. We talked about that in our podcast. That's where I'm all over the map, stuff like that. But um, Wait, they actually have Mormon an older teaching. A lot of these, yeah. 
Which, which one is the Mormon belief? I'm not really under, uh, believe in the lost anything. tribes. Oh. They, the, the thesis of this book is that <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, but there is a contingent of Mormons out there that actually believe in a hollow earth, mm-hmm. and that the lost oh, yeah. tribes they go really weird. they get weird. Yeah, well the, uh, the the Mormon authority structure they won't acknowledge it. It kind of circulates in the background, decade after decade. But they actually believe that lost tribes are in the hollow earth. Well, British, British Israelism, though, isn't Mormon. The, the, uh, they believe that they came, there were, there were people living over here. There were vast civilizations that were on the Americas. Well, there, and, is, there, is, Hebrew, there is Hebrew DNA proof of Hebrew uh, blood in American Indians, especially the northern tribes. Well, you know, what's the, interesting so is uh, we, I, I've got a really good book uh, on this uh, archaeological evidence for uh, expansion by ancient uh, Hebrews into the Americas. That doesn't yes. mean there were vast civilizations here. But there, you know, there, I think there was a stone tablet found with Hebrew writing on it and stuff. But you've got to remember that Solomon, and it's, and it's likely the Phoenicians were under at least – under uh, Solomon's rule, that, that's true. You know, the, the Bible says that you know he was the uh, king of the whole world of at that time, and so you know w- w- we tend to put limits and say, well, he was just in Mesopotamia. We don't know how far his reign extended and how far those guys searched. We, we believe and, the Illuminati has diminished um, Israel at that time. They look uh, like they were smaller than they really were. Yeah, less influential. See, they had um, they had a navy back then. And today we're told, oh, that was all Phoenicia, and the Hebrews had nothing. Uh, I think that's propaganda. But we believe that there was ancient Hebrews in the um, Americas. But even if you don't believe that, there was clearly Phoenicians there, unless the Illuminati is forging all of these uh, archaeological digs. But the problem is, we know that they're not because they don't credit these things. They tend to um, cover they tend them to up. Press them. So what does that tell yeah. you? See. Well, just recently I was reading an article. I mean, you know, talk about problems with evolution. Uh, in Nevada, they were mining for bat guano, believe it or not. They were in this cave, and uh, bat guano makes very good fertilizer. So what they were doing right. is they were they were taking the bat guano out of this cave because it built up, you know, built up over hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. And they were, you know, excavating it. Well, they found these bones in there. This is uh, this is down in Nevada. You can you can Google this. It's yeah, kind of a fascinating story. That that guano has this serving property. Yeah. It. So they found these preserved human re- remains in there. Well, you want to call them human of I giants. These, and these were giant skulls and giant, uh, uh, you know, skeletons. They found numerous of them, and. The local Indian tribes actually still have a uh, a myth or a story about these cannibalistic giants that uh, threatened their tribes, uh, you know, red centuries ago. Yep, they were they were red haired, and mm-hmm. that they that they even have the myth still that they were cornered in a cave and they blocked up the cave and smoked them out and killed them because they you know uh, they basically. The, the Indians, uh, the Native Americans, I guess, to be politically correct, they, uh, uh, you know, outnumbered them, so they cornered them in this cave and killed them. But th- these uh, giants plagued them for, you know, many generations until they were able to eventually kill them off. Uh, but what do you do with that? You know, I mean, you know, Old Testament talks about, uh, you know, the Anakim and the Raphaim and and 
the sons of Anak that were, you know, like Goliath, giants. So we have that biblically, but the chronology of anthropologists doesn't account for these uh, giants. And they, and they suppress this kind of evidence. You know, Michael Cremo, I think, does a great job in his book, uh, Forbidden Archaeology, of showing that there's all sorts of human artifacts that don't fit in with this millions of years chronology. You know, and I don't think he, I don't know if he addresses the idea that, that these things are dated inaccurately. I think he just says, well, look, you, you're dating this millions of years, and here's a, a man-made orb right in the middle of this rock formation, you know? Right. So, you know, that, that's a great book to just show, look, uh, it's it's not all sewn, all the loose ends aren't sewn up. You, you guys are missing something here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and forbidden, there's a reason why it's forbidden. This, this knowledge is being held from us by the elite. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and, I'm, I guess I'm not going to go into Vatican conspiracy because I don't necessarily believe in it, but <laughs> there's a lot of stuff like that out there that no- suppress knowledge. Well, the thing is, all the institutions are controlled. Yeah, there's an agenda. Mm-hmm. And it's so different in archaeology. That's an institutional system that was created by who? Because institutions don't emerge out of a vacuum. They actually create them. Theoretically, one could emerge by itself, you know, from the public sector, but like I said earlier, um, if they view it to be a threat and they're into control, then uh, they'll infiltrate it, neutralize it, and either dissolve it or take it over and promote it, promote it uh, for their own benefit. Let me say something about the the, uh, the British Israelite thing. You know, you can just forget that terminology. Yeah, uh, that's that's kind of demonized. Just talk about lost tribe theories. You know, mm-hmm. well, this yeah. you know, just at a simplistic level, this is based on things like. Um, like the tribe of Dan, there's lots of mysteries about the tribe of Dan. And there's something going on there that you're not going to hear from your pastor. You know what I mean? If you look into that issue, that, that's what kind of gets you going all this stuff. Go, wow, the mysteries about the tribe of Dan. I've got some books just on that subject, which are kind of fascinating. In Europe, you'll see things named apparently after Dan, like the Danube or the um, Denmark, you know. And so you start going to hold it here. So I start buying this stuff, but I started, as I got more skeptical, because I get increasingly skeptical, you see. Um, because how do you actually prove this? Because a lot of times other things are going on, because it's possible the Illuminati actually named these things, but they, that Dan wasn't actually there. I don't, I don't have a problem with Dan being there. You, you can't actually prove it. it it's unfortunate. Um, there's just too many anomalies back then um, that you can't actually prove. But it goes back prove. to a point that you made earlier, and, and that is, you know, when you said Protestants have this view that everything Catholics say is wrong or believe is wrong, yeah, you know, is that true? No, it's not true. Obviously, Catholics have a lot of things right. Yeah. Protestants have a lot of things right. And you could even extend that, I think, reasonably to think that uh, the Mormons have some things right. The replacement theologists have some things right. I think you can find it instructive. <laughs> yeah, we actually talk about that. We actually talk about things that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are correct about. Uh, and Christians, as, as, a, as a rule, are actually wrong. And one of those would be uh, the common Christian, um, and this is why you don't want to trust your pastor too much, because he's, he's just not educated. Um, a pastor is, in my opinion, he's ill-equipped to tell you, uh, prepare you for the afterlife. Okay, now, the listening audience is probably going to have the same opinion as the pastor, so we're probably going to have a conflict here, but what you're told is that you actually go to heaven when you die, right? Well, there's a problem with that, okay? Um, 
like I said before, when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, he's got this little book, um, You Can Live on Paradise Earth Forever. You know what I mean? He wants to teach you that the 144,000 go to heaven, and you're in the great crowd because that class is officially closed now because everybody actually died. And uh, so if you um, accept um, God's visible organization, <laughs> you can live on Paradise Earth Forever. And they proceed to tell you that you're not going to go to heaven. You're actually going to live on a paradisical earth. Well, I actually believe that that's what the Bible teaches. You know, just to get the heart of the matter, I mean, Jesus actually said that the meek will inherit the earth. Now, if you actually go to uh, Revelation chapter 21, if you look carefully, the figure on the, on the, on the uh, great white throne is actually the same figure that is living amongst his people. And people don't really notice this, okay? It's the same figure on the great white throne. And now, in Revelation 21.3, He's actually living with his people. And um, God dwells on earth. Uh, and it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is the land-grant covenant. And based on Hebrews 11, the heroes chapter there, Abraham hasn't inherited these promises, you know what I mean? So that, that means that there's still future. And so he, you're going to have this restored Israel. And it actually says two different places in Genesis one is Genesis 14, I believe, and also a couple chapters later. He says, this is for your descendants forever. That's the, uh, the, the English translation, and the word in Hebrew actually means a long period of time. But that's why we believe in it. Most Christians believe in eternal hell. They base it on that same word. You know what I mean? That's why it's translated Zion. forever. Well, if we just I take that, that, what it says in the English, I mean, <laughs> that's a long period of time at the very least. You know what I mean? Right. You also, like a lot of the times, like a lot of the laws that were instituted, like in Deuteronomy and and in X and in Leviticus, those were also uh, accompanied with statements of forever. And so a legalist will get in your face about that, but you have to remember that they are actually instituted forever, and they still hold because Jesus fulfilled the law, so the law still applies in Him. Uh, so all those things are everlasting. Uh, uh, statutes, but they've been fulfilled, so they're not actually physically kept anymore. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I understand that position. Hey, it's boy Johnny breaking in here. I wanted to uh, jump in here and insert a uh, caveat. Uh, Dave is about to tell us all that he holds to the belief that we will not be in heaven uh, after we die, but uh, we'll be here on earth with God. Um, he agrees that in a new heaven and a new earth, but um, I do not hold to this view at this point. I believe that we'll be in heaven. Uh, but, you know, um, Dr. Future always told me uh, that we need to remain joyfully teachable. And uh, another thing he also told me was that, you know, a lot of times we may not agree with somebody, but at least we can find it instructive to listen to what they have to say and uh, weigh it fairly and uh, make up our own minds. So, uh, again, I just wanted to just put a caveat in here that I don't hold to this view at this point in my faith. So, anyway, let's let uh, Dave continue. Also, there's another data point there in Zechariah chapter 2 where Cully says that God's going to come and live with his people on earth. He's going to live in the midst of his people. And then you start, to look, you start to look at these passages that talk about us going to heaven. Where are they? You have to qualify that, though, uh, because the Bible says the old heavens and the old earth had passed away. 
and there, there was a new heavens and a new earth. So you can't really, you have to qualify that. You can't make, you don't want people to think that they're going to be here, you know, on the West Coast, kicking back on their, in their same place, because it's not <laughs> going to be the same earth. Well, it's a, it's a restructured it's a, earth. It, you know, the same, it retains the same substance, but it's renewed. Is that, is that the belief you have? Yeah, I don't know. It's, I guess I haven't studied it enough to have an intelligent uh, conversation about it, but I do, knew, I do know that it's clearly said it's a new heavens and a new earth, for the former had passed away. So it's not this earth, or if it's this earth, it's completely rebuilt. Well, the, the, I can tell you what scholars say. Um, they just say there's a qualitative distinction, that's all. It's just, it still has the same substance. It's renovated, you know what I mean? They don't. They don't teach they don't, it. It's created out of nothing. It's completely destroyed, and, it's, and the new one's created out of nothing. It does say that the former heavens and the former earth have had passed away. Yeah, yeah. It there's a new What can you do with that? I mean, how much scholarly wisdom does it take to figure that out? Well, I mean, John, I, I'm coming at it too simply. Yeah, you so. go out there, Second Peter chapter three. I'm starting to get an echo then, and it actually says there. Um, that the, the the world of that time that passed away, I believe the word is aeon there, can be translated as uh, world or age, or actually world age. It says it passed away. It's talking about the flood, see? So that age came to an end, and there was actually a new earth. Now, the reason there's a new earth is, is because it follows by necessity, because that world was destroyed. So because it was destroyed, there had to be a new a new world, you know? So it says the but world then you have Isaiah 24, where basically it it really pretty much lays out the the destruction of the earth. It's uh, completely destroyed. Well, I think I think what Dave's saying is, is it doesn't necessarily have to be ex nihilo, like you know disappeared and then recreated. That's that's what he's saying. Yeah, John. My point is there is that he says that that world was destroyed. But see, we know that it, that it didn't disappear. I'm talking. About, we're talking about the the antediluvian world. You see that? Well, that's true. Was, we are on the same earth as the antediluvian world. So, yeah, I guess you've got a case there. John, it, it, it was renovated, right? So when right. He, uh, see, when he talks about the, the, new, the new heavens and the new earth in Second Peter 3, it's done within the wider context of that, old, that antediluvian concept. It's, it's you not renovation. Revelation. No. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I don't know if that's the same, you can say it the same way, uh, or see it the same way. I mean... Well, the Bible talks about uh, the earth being destroyed by fire. Right. See? So you have to put that somewhere in a timeline, too. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Thinking about it, I suppose that, you know, we are on the same earth as the antediluvian world. Yeah, yeah. We don't have the canopy anymore. Uh, the oxygen levels are totally depleted from what they were. I don't know if you're into that ancient stuff, but... Well, well, I've studied uh, Hebrew cosmology a lot. They had a different, a radically different cosmology. But the, the view that's popular today is called the canopy theory, that the canopy collapsed and it's never been restored again. You know what I mean? So. Right. Yeah. And that's for those who don't know, what I'm talking about the um, the Center for Creation Research is the first I heard about it. The Institute for Creation Research. And they, the antediluvian canopy theory uh, is they believe that uh, uh, the Earth was uh, encapsulated by a by a double a dual layer one layer of frozen water 
and another layer of frozen carbon dioxide ice, and it, it was a shell around the Earth, and these were the um, the waters that were separated from the waters, mm-hmm. and uh, that during the the during the uh, during the flood, uh, this antediluvian canopy was broken apart by whatever you know. You could say an asteroid, or you could say God's finger touched it. Whatever yeah. you want. Yeah. And then the um, the ice melted, the ice broke, the canopy broke, the shell around the earth broke and fell down to the earth as water and carbon dioxide, and which displaced the oxygen. And the uh, fountains of the deep were unleashed, which was a lot of subterranean water that came up at the same time as the as the frozen ice shell breaking at the t- from the top. Mm-hmm. So you had enough to completely submerged the whole earth even you know as high you know however many cubits above the top of mount everest anyway yeah, yeah. well the water had to come from somewhere there's there's another scientist he's a, I, I actually like this guy he's pretty humble i think he went to princeton or mit i think he went to mit actually um and uh i want to say his name is dr brown he he's a big proponent of the hydroplate theory. He he's saying there was like this water layer underneath. Uh, I, I think he still buys into plate tectonics, but he's just saying that there's all this water underneath there, and then you know for whatever reason you know God ordained that this water was going to come up from below, and see all these. Um, and it, that kind of goes back to what Dave was saying earlier about you know some of these civilizations with the flood. I mean there was. <laughs> There were a lot of problems there, you know, trying to restru- uh, reconstruct what civilization was what and the timeline and, and all that because you had so much water uh, covering everything up and debris. So, right. you know, he has all this water coming up from underneath these these plates. Right. And then obviously you have water coming down, too. I don't, I don't know if he's a canopy proponent or not, but I really liked – his explanation of it, because basically what you had is it's kind of like Louisiana. You, you kind of had this giant bathtub. See, he had the bottom of the of the ocean was actually a, a large plain, and he thinks that it, it might even have been uh, uh, inhabited. And then you had all this water coming up from below and, and filling up these things. So the continents were, you know, radically altered, and you had these continents arising, and then and then the water, the weight of the water is pushing down on these uh land masses and so uh you had you know these these huge trenches and everything that were sunk so it's his theory not mine but um i i think there's some merit to it to be honest with you it, he explains it much better I, he did a podcast i i can't remember uh what show he was on i think he was actually on coast to coast believe it or not explaining this hydro well, he also explain that the you know the mountain ranges that we have now like mount everest those all happened post flood, and there really wasn't mountains that high. Right. Exactly. That's what he's saying. Is that all these mountain ranges are young. Right. You know, we, we believe they're young. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and that's why you see fossil, uh, you know, formations at the top of these mountains. Not because the mountains are super old and and uh, they they rose up. You know, they're they're young and they they were pushed up. You know, so. Yeah, anyway, the top of mountains are hard to explain. It's Probably. interesting when you study ancient cosmologies because they're all 
uh, just a variation, the same theme. Uh, they all believed in a solid firmament, which is not compatible with the uh, canopy theory. And people just kind of explain this as, well, you know, um, that was a pretty scientific uh, com- uh, community or whatever the heck, you know, and whatever the heck, because it, it runs into problems with the Bible. So You don't like the canopy theory? The what? The canopy? Uh, oh, I, I don't know. I, I just... Uh, no, I, I don't hold to it myself, no. Yeah, I don't hold to it anymore. I used to hold to it, but I, I just... Uh, Almost I've kind of well, I've kind of moved away from it. So as far as I know, all the uh, Christian, you know, creation type groups don't they hold that view? Yeah, a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, it, it has some merits. I'm not saying it's like absolutely false. I mean, there could be. You know, see, one of the evidences they're trying to give is there was greater uh, atmospheric pressure, so there was like instant wound healing and and you know longer. Uh, or longevity because the atmospheric pressure was greater and that allowed plants and animals to grow larger. There, there might be some uh, factual basis in that. I mean, there, there could have been a radical change in our, our atmospheric pressure. Not only and, that, but the shielding from cosmic radiation was, would have allowed, allowed you to live a lot longer. Yeah, I mean, we don't really know, I mean, why our lifespan is less than it was. I mean, I, I've heard people try to explain that. I mean, there are a lot of things we just don't know. You know, and that, this is why it's fun to have podcasts and, and talk about these things without getting too uh, dogmatic about them. I mean, they're, you know, it's pretty hard to prove the past. <laughs> we hold to the ancient view that um, that there was a solid firmament and that there's actually um, like a cosmic ocean up there that's above the firmament. And God released kind of like these portals there that it talks about in the book of Enoch. And also talks about... Yeah, the floodgates of the heavens. Yeah, floodgates, yeah. Mm-hmm. And those waters came through that ferment. See, what I was going to point out is Enochian cosmology is very similar to Norse cosmology and some other ancient cosmologies. So, you know... Well, they, did you guys paint a picture of what that would have looked like? I mean, obviously, that's... You're, you're talking about like an antediluvian canopy, but you're not talking about a frozen one. You're talking about what? What does that look like if you drew it on a drew it on a piece of paper? Well, you know, I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. And Eric, just I think it was this morning or the morning before that, um, I've been hypothesizing about what this light is in Genesis one uh, that God created before the um, the sun. The, you know, the sun. Because uh-huh. a lot of people say it's spiritual light, but. Uh, we have a theory that there's actually there's two sources of light. There's light streaming from heaven that goes through this canopy, and then it also is from the sun. Uh, we're geocentrists, by the way. It, it, they, so, they talk they talk about like a vault of heaven. Okay. I believe that it's it's a solid subject, but excuse me, object substance. But the yeah. light can stream through it. Well, what we're what we're saying. What, there's a couple of pictures of it actually in like medieval paintings where you have like this guy peeking out of the firmament. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that one, but uh, I think so. say is, see, I think I think the Illuminati they hold to this cosmology too. If you look at all the Capitol buildings, they have this dome. See, this is Enochian cosmology here. You have this dome, and then you have these pillars on top of the dome with another dome on top of it. That's the vault of heaven. See, they're showing you that they believe that there is this vault. This firmament, and then on top of the firmament, you have heaven. That's what the ancient world believed. That's what the Illuminati is showing us in their architecture. And that's kind of what we hold to, too. And that's what the book of Enoch uh, describes, too. I'm not saying 
the book of Enoch is infallible, and we believe it just because the book of Enoch says it. I'm just saying that, you know, there, there's all these connections. So. John? Yes. We hold to the, pro- to the view that we can't actually um, prove what, what kind of cosmology we have, what our reality is, apart from Scripture. The reason is because we're getting all our data from uh, JPL and NASA. We don't trust yeah. any of it. Zero. We're skeptics. Yeah, I don't either. I don't. Uh, I don't even believe that the stars are as far as away as they say they are. Uh, well, well, yeah, we we're don't on either. the table with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? It, guess totally. what? In the in the ancient world, they had, um, as far as we know, it was a universal belief, and that universal belief was that the sun and the moon were the same size. Now, what's interesting about that is if you look up in the sky, they actually appear to be the same size. Now, there's actually kind of an illusion that scientists explained that the sun appears to be I think it's smaller when it first comes up, you know because it's so far away. Horizon. Yeah. But when you know yeah, when you see them overhead, they, they do appear to be the same size and that's what everybody believed in. In other words they actually trusted their their you know their eyesight. Where today we trust science. You know what I mean? That's the difference right there. Right. Now, no, the, I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing, okay? Um, no, I'm just saying what they believe. Space. Yeah. What they believe. Not, yeah, we're not saying it's the same size. But here's the thing, okay? Um, Tycho Brahe, um, he he actually admitted, and, and Kepler, uh, he was a geocentrist, okay? We get most of their planetary motion laws from Kepler, okay? But Kepler was a student of Tycho Brahe, and he carried on Brahe's works. Now, Brahe... You know, he was a brilliant scientist, but he actually admitted that you could not tell from his data whether the sun went around the earth or the earth went around the sun because the data could prove it either way. And he was actually a geocentrist. He believed that the earth was stationary and that, you know, the sun was moving around it. But Kepler took his information and his observations and he developed a... uh, you know, the the heliocentric theory and said, well, I'm going to use all this information and I can show that the sun goes around the Earth. So that's where we get all our planetary motion from. It's actually from a geocentrist. So it's kind of interesting little history there. Here's a little fractured factoid. Um, Astrology is actually based on a uh, geocentric cosmology. Isn't that something? Uh, Is it really? You didn't know that? I thought you knew Uh that. No, I know that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You can investigate it. So you hold to a geocentric? Yeah, we're, well, that's the Hebrew cosmology. It's most Christians have have, uh, have embraced science. You see, now when you go to like uh, like Eric used to teach at a big mega church here in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, when you look at that curriculum for all these uh, Christian educational systems, um, I think probably the homeschooling ones too. Um, you know, they tell you that evolution is a lie. You know, and then um, everything else pretty much is the same as. Uh, quote-unquote orthodox science, which we think is actually quackery propaganda. Well, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, Joshua, it says that God uh, stopped the sun. It doesn't say right. that God stopped the rotation of the earth. Now, people would say, well, the, you know, the Bible's not a science book. You know, that they were describing, you know, from an agrarian culture. And it says they kind of explain away what, what or from the says. perspective of earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're going to have to hold to a conspiracy belief system here to, to acknowledge this. You know what I mean? Just like if you're a hollow earther. There's different so types of hollow earth beliefs. That scripture be scripture when it says God stopped the sun in the sky. Maybe we should just go ahead and 
I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, you you've got other science problems if God stopped the rotation of the Earth because, and you know, I'm not saying he couldn't do this, but then he'd have to stop all the tidal motion, and he'd have to, you know, <laughs> he's, you suddenly stop the Earth from spinning, and you got you got to freeze a lot of molecules of water from sloshing onto the continent too. So. Here's a couple of things that are interesting. Um, I've actually seen just on Wikipedia at two different times. Um, I can't tell you, you know, what article to go to, but they actually acknowledge there twice that I've seen that the Earth is not a sphere and that there are actually no scientists um, that I'm aware of anyway. They say that there's, it's the, I think, did they say the prevailing view or the accepted opinion? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they said 16th century, possibly 17th century, that the Earth is actually an oblate spheroid. Um, kind of like a, a basketball where you let the, the air out and you kind of p- compress it down. It's, it has a wider girth. But it's interesting, when you see Hollywood, it consistently represents the Earth as a perfect sphere. But in the movie 20, uh, 20, 2012, right. they, had, they had the crazy conspiracy guy. And he had this little video that he made, and he actually represented the Earth as an oblate spheroid. And what does that tell you? It was a cartoon type thing, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. <laughs> and that's something? Even, you know what's amazing is even the images they give us from supposedly some of the, uh, you know, the, the space missions, they show the Earth is a perfect spear. So the science is contradicting, contradicting itself. Why do the scientists mm-hmm. still hold to the fact that it's an oblate spheroid? So are these NASA pictures real? You know, that's that's the question that arises. People always, you know, in in the truth movement, they always say, well, NASA's, you know, they're they're hiding all the stuff out there, and and they're not showing us really what's going on. Yet they believe them when they say, this is the Earth that we are going to show you. You know what I mean? By the way, John, did you know that um, outside of Western uh, culture, they have different cosmologies? For instance, did you know that the uh, the Islam is actually geocentric? Oh yeah, across the board. Oh, and I've actually you ask a Muslim, the ones that I've asked, they go, "Oh yeah," <laughs> they don't yeah. believe it. Um, you know, you look like you look you look like Hindu religions, Buddhist uh, or like Jainism stuff like that. They have their own cosmology. They don't pay any attention to Western science at all. They think it's nonsense. <laughs> there, there's some goofy videos out there. I've actually seen, uh, you know, some Muslim religionists trying to explain geocentrism. You know, they don't. They don't do a very good job, but, but anyway, I, you, that belief is there, you know. My my theory, uh, why they're not telling us the truth, um, that the earth, what they're doing, they're giving us the, the dialectic. You're offered two options, the right or the left, you know. You're a perfect sphere or a flat earth. And they're lying to us because in the ancient world, they used to believe, the common belief was that the earth was not a uh, flat earth. That, that came later and that actually could be propaganda. I can't actually prove that it wasn't propaganda. But, but we do know that they, they used to believe in a domed Earth that was actually floating in the cosmic sea. And notice I know you never hear about this at all. Nobody talks about this at all. See, the thing about a, a flat disk on a cosmic sea, that's actually not, doesn't even make any sense. There has to be some kind of um, character to the land, some physicality that has some height to it, you know. Uh, and they didn't believe that. They actually believed uh, that it was a, a, a dome. And you could, my theory is, is that, um, that the Earth is an oblate spheroid, and they don't want us to, to even start thinking about how much, how, how, uh, how spherical the, it actually what, is. What's the angles they are, you know what I mean? 
Right, it's not just taking down a certain path and then we'll embrace a certain worldview. Because there's no speculation about it. Nobody talks about, you know, the curvature. It's just a perfect sphere. That's it. Go back to sleep. If you look at some of the symbolism that's out there, too, like in the movie industry and stuff, they'll actually show you the shape. You know, like in Universal Pictures, um, they'll – they have, you know, this oblate kind of dome shape with the earth on it. And then they, uh, at the end of like all these movies, they have like, it's supposed to be a reel, but then they have like an earth, like an oblate spheroid around this reel. Like it has four quadrants. Yeah, you're talking about the symbol yeah. for Universal Pictures, I believe. It's yeah. Universal Pictures. They have it at the yep. end of every single film. They have, yep. um, if, they, if that's an earth symbol, it's an oblate spheroid. And they show you the actual, also the United uh, Nations symbol. It's looking down at the top of the earth, and guess what? That's a domed earth because you see all the continents represented in the upper half of the earth. Yeah, you do. Which is very fascinating because in the ancient world, they believed that the earth was a dome that was floating in a cosmic sea, which the Greeks called Oceanus. Mm -hmm. Some people try to say that Oceanus was a a world-encircling river. There's two well, that's opinions. why it was represented as a turtle, too. I mean, but the, old, the older opinion is that, that Oceanus was actually a, a world-encircling sea, because that's what everybody believed. That the, the Sumerians called it the Apsu, and that's where Inki lived, you see. Right. Um, in fact, that sea is actually represented in Solomon's Temple, the Brazen Sea. Right, the, yeah, on the, on the bowls. That's the what bronze. it is. That's, that's what gets translated in our English Bibles as the deep. Or the abyss. See, it's a watery abyss. We've lost knowledge about what that abyss is. It's a watery abyss. Anyway, whether that's true or not, that's what they taught universally in the ancient world. There's, let me put it this way. Instead of saying that you know, that's a near universal belief, we have no evidence to disprove that. All the evidence we have is that everyone believed in this cosmic sea. And that's why you could have um, ancient Chinese or you could have indigenous cultures, and they represented the earth as a turtle because it was a dome and it was floating. See that? Mm-hmm. That's what they believed. Now, we believe that they got that from an original pristine belief system where, where everyone had the same belief at one time. But we can only present this as a hypothetical apart from Scripture because you can't prove it with science because we don't have the evidence. We, we can't get out there to look down. They won't let us see anything we don't trust their evidence we don't trust anything we're skeptics well i sit there and watch the live satellite feed from dish networks uh star one and the earth looks pretty round from up there oh yeah well here's the thing john uh uh, uh, nasa has actually admitted that they don't have any live imagery you look at like a 9-11 uh fiasco you know you have to investigate this but i'm going to just tell you from my opinion this is based on other people that i trust who've looked at the imagery, and they actually have a particular uh, type of software out there that's available to the public sector. Why, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but you can actually use this to show whether it's basically, quote-unquote, Photoshopped or not. All that imagery is, quote-unquote, Photoshopped. We don't have any. It's all been manufactured. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen the, uh, the uh, imagery you're talking about, Johnny. And, yeah. Uh, Notice how they only show you small sections, though, too. You know, they're not showing you... They're not showing you a like a, a pulled back version where you can see the whole earth. They're just showing you like a like a, a sliver of the earth, you know. No, not on the feed that I watch. It's uh, it's yeah, you the whole earth right there. They sometimes show the whole earth. They don't like to. It's relatively rare. No. It's I've never seen it. I've never seen it, but I know that they do it every once in a while. They don't like to though. 
We know that the Earth bulges at the equator by at least 20 miles. Yeah. Right. That's what the scientists are saying. That's why they say it's an oblate You're saying it's more extreme than that, you think? Well, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be too much more extreme. But it, it's not a sphere is what we're saying. And yet it's to, depicted as a sphere. And yet, yeah, I mean, science doesn't even call it a sphere. I mean, they know no. it bulges at the equator. They no. know it's so, flatter than it is. It's not a perfect sphere. And that's why if we had a crustal slippage, then um, you would have that Isaiah 24 scenario. Because <clears throat> it's the crust, you know, the loose, the orange peel effect where the earth comes, the crust of the earth comes loose, the whole crust of the earth. And, you know, like Texas slides up to where the North Pole is. The problem is that the bulge of the equator being 20, 25 miles higher than the rest of the Earth, what will happen is, is that, when the, the, that when the crust slips and you have the North Pole in a new position and the equator in a completely new position, that's going to re-bulge. <laughs> so you're going to have things like Mount Everest becoming the Marianas Trench real fast. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly with Isaiah 24, if you've ever done any study yeah, of that. I've done lots. Of, well, we, we believe in a massive cataclysm that was covered up. See, what's interesting... Already. <laughs> see, we're, all, we're, all we're doing, Johnny, is we're just kind of pointing at things that are inconsistent. I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to piece together because we believe that the Illuminati is so pervasive in their deception that, you know, it's hard to get a grasp on what's real. You know what I mean? And so we're looking at you know, this discrepancy between what they say the earth looks like and what they show us the earth looks like. And yet nobody talks about this. Mm-hmm. No one's saying, hey, wait a second. They just showed me a perfectly sphere earth, the blue marble. And yet, you know, in every science text and in every statement by scientists, they say it's a spheroid. Well, why is that? Why doesn't anybody point that out? So we're just pointing at these things and saying this is inconsistent. So there's, there's other inconsistencies inconsistencies too and we're just trying to point them out and say look that they're not telling us the truth we don't know what the truth is all the time but at least we can know that they're you know they're lying to us hey john everything is reducible to one word the word trust do you trust them we don't right yeah no i don't i mean i don't i've seen enough to know that you know and i've also listened to enough people that i've respected i don't know do you know about uh professor james mccanny yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't trust him either. <laughs> I used to trust him. <laughs> yeah, I used to trust. I used to hang on his word. <laughs> What's up? Yeah. Like, <laughs> really supports your view. Look at his credentials, by the way. They're false. Huh? Do some research on him. He's got false credentials. Oh well, you know, but I was just going to say a lot of the things that he says uh, lends a lot of support to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah well, he's true. got some good information. I mean, yeah. he really does. But, you know, it, it, what they do is they set out these people that they, they create veils. So this guy, you know, he he's for the truthers out there that are saying, oh, there is harp technology, you know, forming these uh, these hurricanes. You know, look at the right angles in these cloud formations. So he points all this stuff out. But then they – so they have individuals out there that are created just to give you enough truth so you'll buy into it, and then they'll take you off into a different direction. That's what he's doing. Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying. Hey, John? He's yeah. supposed to be a Christian, though. Yeah. Well, actually, he's involved with a um, an aberrant 
because there's different types of Christian uh, Christian identity groups, but he's involved yeah. with a fairly aberrant. Uh, he's associated with a guy that's really heavily into that. You can Google that too. Christian identity? You're talking about Nazis? No, that would be the extreme. I would actually put the Nazi stuff beyond that. But there's there's um, it starts to move into that on the far left Christian identity movement. Yeah, it's a, a type of replacement theology, or is that what you're talking about? Uh, no. Well, there's, 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 it, it, um, it overlaps that to some degree. Yeah. Really? Yeah. There's a lot of these movements overlap, you know, I, in iron show, iron show 24, you guys might like that. Uh, I get into a battle with a Christian identity preacher. It's called, um, iron show 24, the Nazi preacher. And, uh, it's pretty wild. I listen to that. Yeah. That's what I know about Christian identity is from the Nazi preacher. Yeah. Well, he was, now, he was extreme, though. That's an extremist. Right. Yeah. I know that McCain well, kind of embraces a lot of the the, the statements in the Colburn, you know, uh-huh. a lot of that. He's pretty edgy. If he's Christian, he's very, very, very edgy. Yeah, see, I yeah. think Col- the Colburn is a forgery. I used to pay attention to it, too. But, you know, it's promoted by McCanny, you know. Right, yeah. yeah. But my, well, what I was trying to say is, is that a lot of the things he explains about the science community, he sets it up like you have, where you yeah. have um, it's set up at the very top, at several tiered levels of science that are compartmentalized from each other, you know, kind of like the CIA. Yeah, and he's right about that, we think. And he's got the science community set up in tiers where then if you get into the Collins Brothers, and McKinney kind of goes in that same general angle that at the very top level of the science community, the top tier scientists are really mystics. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Promote this broad ranging, uh, overarching agenda. They're a technological priesthood in our estimation, yeah. Right. Yes. The scientific mm-hmm. dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See, all you have to do is kind of take a look. I mean, that's another uh, field there in uh, like energy technology where you, know, you see collusion, you see control from the top. These, right. Uh, you see technology that comes and goes, but it's never developed because, you know, and, and you know, lower level kind of conspiracy theories will say, well, it's, you know, all about money and they just want to control the, the oil and, and that's the prevailing technology and they don't want to, you know, lose their grip on all the money they're making. And, but, but there's a you know there's a different agenda there. I mean that, that that's part of it. But you know <clears throat> there there's technology out there, obviously. So why don't they develop that technology and keep their power? Well, because the Illuminati won't let them. You know, I mean there, there's all sorts of alternative fuel sources that we could utilize right now. And uh, yeah, but it's in their interest because they can't keep that power structure in place. Exactly. I mean, look look at like Tesla. Look at you know if you just do a little bit of reading on Tesla, oh, yeah. You look at you know his wireless uh, transmission of power technology. But boy, they slam that door shut. You know what I mean? Because oh, yeah. they can't they can't have everybody running on free power. What are we? You know, are we going to have a true democracy? No way. Yeah, the original yeah the original reason behind that is that there's just no there was no way to meter the power and charge them accordingly. Yep. I imagine now they could unleash some of that and charge you accordingly with the technology now, but I don't know. I mean, Tesla always had, he also had some pretty wild stuff. Remember the generator that ran that car for 90, 90 miles? 
this little box. Uh, you know, I don't remember that one. Uh, yeah, I, I've done a little out- bit of research in a Tesla, but, you know, that might have been the chapter of the book I skipped. <laughs> but that, was, that would be one that the oil companies would really hate. He, he ran a car for something like three weeks, and uh, he did a public demonstration of it in New York, and he powered it f- from this small box that uh-huh. gathered power from the ether. Oh, you know, that's, that's actually, uh, yeah, I got into a debate on this with this guy in, uh, Paltok and he and I were talking about a device called the Joe cell, which, uh, powered a car. And he was trying to say, it's just, um, the Joe cell was just a, uh, uh, kind of a hydrogen, um, electrolysis, you know, where you're taking water and you're splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. That's how you're powering the car. And that's not what the Joe cell is at all. The original Joe cell might be what it is now. But the original Joe cell was actually kind of a device like that where it drew uh, this energy. That's kind of what my name means, the ether man there, you know. Cause it drew, drew in this uh, pervasive fluid that's all around us called the ether that right. just used to believe, they used to believe in before the Michelson-Morley experiment. Actually, they did. one of our first podcasts, if you ever want to listen to that, Johnny, um, uh, I, I kind of did a structured one in Connie's room, uh, out of the darkness into the light where I, I kind of went through the whole history of, uh, ether technology and the belief in the ether and some of the experiments that supposedly disproved it. And the, and the, uh, experiments that again, reaffirmed it. And then, you know, kind of, kind of went back, uh, through a little scientific history there. So that, that's kind of a, a rare one. I probably won't do that again, but anyways, you know, they, I would just that. that. Yeah, I think that's like one of our first ones or, or second one. I don't remember the date on it, but it looked like episode. I, there's a show description there. Uh, yeah, I think I only went off for about a half hour on that, so it's not too long. Yeah, I'll find it and put it in the show notes at ironshow.com. I think a lot of people. I I don't know enough to uh, talk very intelligently about the ether, but I know that um, that in the ni- in the 19th century. And into the beginning of the 20th century, most of the scientific community believed in the ether. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, not only that, but um, uh, it was abandoned in the West. But the Russians in, and uh, the Nazis uh, kept going with it and developed right. that technology. Um, uh, one, I, I think in, in the East it was called uh, – <clears throat> oh, what do I want to call it? Um, Oh, tetrahedral physics. Yeah. Am I right? You know about Richard Hoagland stuff now? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. The hyperdimensional physics? Is that what you're talking about? Model. Yeah. Yeah, Hoagland talks about that. That's what I call it. (laughs) Yeah. That's where I'm getting it from. There's my source. Yeah, well, you know, Hoaxland actually had some good stuff out there. You know, he he talked about the uh, original Maxwell equations were modified because they sounded too metaphysical and they didn't include the the scalar quantity and that kind of thing. And which is which is interesting because you know he you know Maxwell the you know he was kind of formulating all this electrical theory that we base we still use as a basis for our theory and. We yeah, do. He had this ether component in there, this scalar component, and they right. took it out of there. They took it out. You know why? So, you know, he 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 
didn't think it was metaphysical. He thought it was scientific, and, and yet they were like, no, no, you can't put that in there. So, yeah, the basic electronic theory is based on that. Uh, the, that's in the original. That's in the original equations that were not abandoned. If you take, if you go, if you take electronic engineering, you'll run into that, and you'll get weird. You'll get you'll get shoulder shrugs, but they base their engineering on those principles. Yep. Which I can't speak very intelligently of. Well, you know, I just, I, I just have aware enough information to be dangerous with it. You know, I don't, I'm not an expert on that. I just, uh, I, you know, I take those pieces of information, I try to put them into the bigger puzzle. And uh, the, uh, but what I was trying to say is the Joe cell, you know, it, it, the idea was that it's kind of like a capacitor. It would draw in this etheric fluid from around it. And it, it would, I think the original one, it, would, it had to be like an aluminum engine, like in a uh, Range Rover or something like that. And then, um, but they would, they would create the original Joe cell was actually, uh, uh, the water in it was contained. So the water wasn't being used up. And then they had these, uh, tubes within tubes, and then they had this specially charged water in it. And then, you know, I don't know all the components of the Joe cell, but what what they the idea was is you had these tubes within tubes, and that kind of acted like an etheric capacitor, and that's what ran the car. So, oh. um, so that that was the original Joe cell. Now the the story goes that you know we don't even know who this Joe guy was, but he claimed. Uh, he was like an internet figure, and then he claimed that he was threatened, and then he, uh, you know, dismantled all of it, and he got off the internet, and then he wouldn't talk about it anymore. So that's that's the story. I don't know if that's true or not, but oh, you cannot gather power from the ether and uh, tell the world about it and live. Yeah, well, then you know, like I said, I mean, it, it sounds plausible that that could happen. That you know, he was threatened, and there's there's other things besides that, though. Actually, where I live, there was a uh, a guy out here who's kind of a kind of a rogue. I, I wouldn't really call him a scientist. He's more of a like a the- theoretician. Uh, he wrote a book called The Awesome Life Force. You can still get it through uh, some of these rogue publishing companies like Health Research. Um, but uh, in that book, he describes some of these inventions. And uh, one supposedly was out here on Lake Washington in Washington State, and it was these different uh, rods of iron with um, I think they were individually wrapped toroids, you know, so you had, or not toroids, but like uh, uh, coils that were wrapped around these iron bars. And then these, then the iron bars were uh, grouped together and then uh, wrapped again. And I don't, I don't know how the device worked. He describes it in the book and then he jump started it with a battery. Uh, supposedly this ran an engine and this guy ran around Lake Washington with this engine that just drew uh, energy, free energy out of the, out of the surroundings, and same thing happened to this guy. According to Cater, um, you know he was he was pulled, he was pulled aside and said, "You you better not share this technology with anybody." There is a true story about a guy who, and that's provable, about a guy that um that invented the 200 mile per gallon carburetor, and this was in the 30s, mm-hmm. and they bought everything he had up, and they bought him a um. They bought him a oil filter manufacturing plant, and that became, I want to say, um, Purolator. 
But hmm. I'm, I'm gonna I don't quote me on that. But I, I, I that's bringing back some memories. This is you know stuff I used to research 15 years ago. So I you know there's probably new stuff that has come and gone that I haven't even looked into. Right. Um, you know. But it goes back to the fact that there's there's a there's a cadre of elite science, and at the very top, they're they're mystical uh, and uh, like a high priesthood that does yeah. keep um, because in order to have science at the bottom, you have to have science that goes all the way to the top, or none of it can exist. Right. So it's yeah. very easy to pull the wool over even the scientist's eyes mm-hmm. because they'll go so far in their knowledge. And then they won't be able to, you know, they won't be able to access the knowledge above that they need to, to actually substantiate their theories. It's like you're saying about the, you know, the dating. There's mm-hmm. very, you know, there's so few people that understand, you know, the constant of decay that nobody can, you know, all the other scientists just have to use trust, right? It, it, that's exactly it. Even if you, if you talk to, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll wager that you talk to nine out of 10 geologists, professional geologists, they either haven't even heard of that or they've never even thought about it. They just trust the constant and, and they could probably walk you through the whole equation on how to develop, you know, how to, um, you know, uh, calculate the half-life, but they've never examined what I was talking about because they, they're just trusting. Right. They haven't gone through the proofs themselves because, you know, the reason I can say that, sorry, Johnny, go ahead. No, that's basically just said the same thing. They haven't gone through the proofs themselves because they haven't done the material science. They haven't done the experiments themselves. Yeah, yeah. well, they've, they've already bought into an ideology that the Earth is very old, and, and so they're just looking to, you know, well, you know, I mean, that's a constant. It must be constant, so I'm going to plug it in this equation, and we get this, and it, it, there it is. It's right in front of you. Why don't you believe it? You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I've actually called these geologists. I'm not somebody who just sits back and says, well, I think that they think this. I've actually talked to people. You know, I call them up and uh, say, hey, what do you think about this? Do you, do you know about this? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Somebody who's just spouting uh, nonsense here and his little ideas and pipe dreams. Right. Yeah. No, I just, you know, I mean, I, if I have time, I, you know, I would call up some people at universities and, and say, what do you think about this? And sometimes they call me back. Sometimes they don't, but, uh, I, I haven't called that many. I haven't like polled, you know, nine out of 10 dentists agree. You know, I haven't done that kind of polling. Does it always pretty much support your contention though? Well, that's what I'm saying is the ones I talk to, you know, they, they say, Oh, I haven't heard that before. You know what I mean? I mean, so they haven't really thought about that. They they just know how to count. Like I said, they could walk me through the other explanations, but when I when I when I brought that to them, they were like, "Oh, I hadn't heard that before." You know, uh, I'm not sure how that's calculated. That kind of thing. You know, even if you do a search on the internet and look how the decay constant is calculated, you have to do some searching. You know, it's not it, it's not laid out there. If you look up on how half life, uh, excuse me, how half lives are calculated, you'll you'll come up with a ton of websites. That's that's pretty you know standard stuff. Even the USGS uh, side, I think, even explains that you know. So, I mean, so there's stuff for public con- consumption. Then there's stuff you have to go behind behind the veil and kind of look and do some thinking about. 
And there's stuff for public consumption. Then there's stuff for scientific consumption. Then there's several levels above that. I would totally agree with that. Consumption and, you know, third tier scientific consumption, second tier scientific consumption. And it all goes up to probably the very geniuses, men minds like Einstein and Maxwell, you know, and, and Tesla and, and then if you go beyond that, you're probably talking about fallen angels who have said every... Johnny, said, are you talking about radical conspiracy theories now? Yeah, sorry about that, but... <laughs> yeah, angels, and they've worked it out so smart that they can fool the, even the very top people. Yeah, no, I think nope. you're right. Does that make sense? John, yeah, we, can't even, we don't even claim to measure how many levels there are. Yeah. But uh, we believe that the true science is in a realm that we call subterranea. It's directly below our feet. You know what I mean? We're talking about advanced underground structures, cities. That's where these... Oh, really? Super- the hollow earth? No, this is... No, you don't have... This has nothing to do with the hollow earth. No, but it's you're just- talking subterranean. We, we just yeah. gave it a name. I call it subterranea. They've got shopping malls down there. They've got artificial lakes. They've got everything down there. They've got artificial sun, a manufactured sunlight, you know what I mean? But they actually admit that they have some of these things. I mean, there's uh, – is it, is it Mount Weather, I think? They have some stuff under there. And These are what we call the unknown supermen, and they're basically like transhumans at a biological level. They're vastly superior. They don't have names. They don't have normal lifespans, and they don't appear on the surface. Um, normally, but if they do, they don't identify themselves to us. And uh, they, they throw out these lower-level Illuminati, like the Rothschilds and stuff like that. See, people focus on them, and it goes way above them. People are mainly focused on, when you listen to people like uh, Hoagland, where he talks about his hyperdimensional technology, and McKinney, who is Tier 2 science, stuff like that, they're all really talking about military-industrial-type uh, science. We're talking about something way beyond that that the mind can barely even perceive. It's always biological. It's always hyperdimensional. Uh, we don't even know what they have. People are trying to say too, too many times, you know, they can do this, but they can't do that. And they're also um, misinterpreting and underestimating their motivations. We believe that they're actually alchemists. So if you have nanotechnology, you can, you can restructure everything at a molecular level. We believe there's an etheric structure behind that, and we believe they can manipulate too. They just can't create the primordial matter. And we believe that they're black magicians, and they worship Satan. And we, we're not going to sit here and tell you what they can't do. It's kind of open-ended. You know what I mean? So you're saying that our very uh, perception of reality in physics is a deception? Oh, yeah. We don't follow Einstein at all. Einsteinian uh, thinking, we think, is a sham. It's a hoax. He was a plagiarist anyway. Just need to investigate him. He... What they do, they have categories of propaganda, and they have a single person that personifies that one uh, area. Uh, kind of like, jeez, um, um, I was going to think. Uh, well, look at Edison, okay? Edison is their guy out in front. Why, why is Tesla not out in front? Mm-hmm. How come, you, how come you know, the history books don't talk about Tesla, Tesla, Tesla? Tesla gave us AC power and the AC motor. Tesla gave us all these things. It's always Edison invented the light bulb. Edison, you know, Marconi invented the radio. So, but where's where's their main? Or the Wright brothers? There's another good example. There's our main guys out there. They invented flight. Really? There was no flight before the Wright brothers. 
No one well, we, else know, we know there guy. was. There was all these craft in 1897 that were literally going around America, and they were in all the newspapers all over the whole country. Somebody yeah. was flying around. Yeah. That was before 1904 or 1903 or whatever. <clears throat> but we think that uh, – here's what I think. I actually think that McCanny and uh, – I've, I've thought about this a lot. Um, not so much with McCanny, but definitely with Richard Hoagland. I actually think that the most probable scenario is they're actually working for NASA. And part of that was creating a you know, about NASA, so we don't really care too much about I think Facebook, you know, we don't care too much about NASA. Darkly is much darker tinted than we would we we know. In other words, that's the same with the chronology. Um, you'll see uh, heavy-duty conspiracy Christian researchers, and they are quoting all these historical dates as if they're all factual. You can't prove any date before the 16th century, and um, especially if you have a conspiratorial mindset. We don't have any original manuscripts; they're all just medieval copies. And once you fit the Illuminati in there, you're going, uh-oh. It comes back to one word again: see trust. So we think that in the conspiratorial community, the two areas that have the largest potential for research is cosmology and chronology. Because it's like the Preterist community, they're always talking about 70, 80 this and 70, 80 that. No one can prove anything happened in 70 AD. Well, you, you, talk about the one, you talk about the one figure that's always in, in the forefront. Well, who do you have there? Josephus. That's, that's, the, only <laughs> thing, that's the only person we right. have. Yeah. We only have Josephus. Why do we only have Josephus? Why don't we have, you know, Claudius and Tiberius? And why don't we have a whole bunch of people talking about 7080? We have one. We have we have Josephus. So yeah, see, when you were we talking get. earlier about Augustine, I was going to fit in there that um, the thing is is that it's unfortunate, but we really don't know. You can say any single sentence of any church father, and you can't prove or disprove that it's a forgery. This is just unfortunate. And you don't hear people talk about this, and the reason you don't is because the academic community is, number one, it's, they're not conspiratorial at all. And, and that's just a self-evident fact. It really is. It's unfortunate. The other thing is is that their whole um, occupation is based on the credibility of these texts, whether they're cuneiform tablets or ancient manuscripts. The credibility, if they're not credible, then their whole vocation goes right down the tubes. 
Yeah. So they're actually the last people to be thinking critically that there could be some massive force. Well, usually you have like a liberal-minded senate scholar, and he'll be saying things like, well, the Catholic Church, you know, was creating all these forgeries. But the, the Orthodox um, uh, guys, they won't, they won't touch that, typically. I mean, I don't really see it myself. They, they tend to trust the, uh, the, the information, you know, that they have. So, so I guess the, the layman here listening to this would say, where, where are you taking us? Could you take us somewhere based on what you're saying? <laughs> In one program, huh? <laughs> we're opening a lot of doors, but we're not closing them. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, this one guy used to tell me, yeah, the problem with the Sumerians is they were always basically just summing up everything. And, uh, <laughs> well, let me, t- let me touch on that real quick, okay? Because uh, you will hear people speak about these cuneiform tablets with authority. Um, the fact is, is that, well, we do have evidence and this is generally accepted that the Babylonian priesthood was was corrupting um, their mythologies and their philosophy and stuff like that. But see, I, I this is what I believe. I believe that um, that there was uh, these elite priesthoods, and these guys, these guys were actually behind the pharaohs and all the ki- ancient kings. I think it's always been that way, going all the way back to um, Egypt and um, and Sumeria. It's always been that way. It's, it's never the guy in the forefront, you know, just whether it's Obama or the pharaoh or whoever, you know. And uh, they actually had a secret occult philosophy, and a, law, a, a significant segment of that information that they had, which is a tradition which is passed on from generation to generation right up to where we are today, part of that was actually extracted from this ancient um, oral tradition that Adam taught his son Seth, and Seth taught his son. This is just based on just sheer logic. It should be self-evident. Uh-huh. Adam had all this knowledge. Do you think he became that stupid overnight? You know? Okay. And what happened You're, to it all? Okay. Because see, John, we don't have it. It's gone. Right. See, I was, I was going, I was going there at the very beginning of the whole conversation uh-huh. when you were talking about Adam, because I'm one of those guys that believes that, you know, Adam. There's more to Adam than a lot of us think on the surface. For one thing, you have to consider that Adam walked with God in the garden. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he could see into the spiritual plane, obviously. He was created in God's image. Some will tell you that you're not created in God's image. Adam was. And uh, I don't know I don't know about that. But anyway, what I'm trying to get at is that Adam was so much more uh, than a man, than mm-hmm. we think of a man. Well, I, we could talk a lot about that. We could talk a lot about that. Now, you're actually going to hear me talk at some point that Adam was actually a heavenly being. Hey, it's boy Johnny breaking in here, and uh, that is where that session ended, uh, with Adam, the heavenly being. So uh, we, uh, we decided, uh, Eric and Dave and I had decided that we're going to go ahead and uh, de- uh, dedicate an entire session uh, to uh, Dave's uh, contention that Adam was a heavenly being. This is a new thing he's just come up with, so uh, he's going to lay that all on the table for you, you know, in a new session. And so uh, stay tuned. We're going to hit you back with uh, Adam the Heavenly Being. All right! It's your boy Johnny. Until next time.